right. Well, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for attending AthosCon's uh, panel. Uh, we appreciate uh, everyone here today. I am uh, one of the hosts, uh, June Solar, and uh, I am with uh, Jack Meyer, uh, a member and uh, team lead for AthosCon.org, as well as Rob Aducci, who has long been uh, the steward of all things uh, Dark Sun through the Athos.org uh, website. Today, uh, we have the pleasure uh, of having with us uh, Tim Brown, the co-creator of Dark Sun, as well as uh, Alan Varney, uh, who has, has been the author for Veiled Alliance, one of the uh, probably the most looked at accessories that we've had uh, for Dark Sun in a long time. So gentlemen, thank you for coming and thank you uh, all the attendees for attending. We'll be broadcasting this as well on uh, the Discord and uh, the Stone, Bone, and Obsidian podcast. Rob, you got anything? Uh, thanks, June. I, uh, I appreciate you letting us uh, kind of put this on the podcast. Uh, it's good to see you, Tim, and good to meet you, Alan. Hello, Robert. Good to see you, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's been my pleasure to, to, to see Tim again after, uh, I guess, several decades uh, <laughs> apart. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, Tim and I both started in uh, the game industry at just about the same time. We were kind of the uh, part of what we might call a third wave of uh, designers in the role-playing field. Like you know, that, started yeah. with Gary and Dave and uh, Greg Stafford back in the early primordial age. And then uh, they followed, they had this uh, whole round of uh, great uh, followers like, uh, you know, Steve Jackson and Kevin Symbieta and uh, many other and others of that and Mike Stackpole, many of those uh, still active today. And then uh, Tim and I both started in the mid 80s, uh, along with many, many others. And in fact, uh, Tim and I both got started in, in, in much the same way. I started at Steve Jackson Games in 1984 as an assistant editor, and I edited their uh, their magazine there at Steve Jackson Games, uh, Space Gamer. And likewise, uh, Tim, I believe, started at uh, Games Work Game Designers Workshop, editing Challenge Magazine. Do I have that right, Tim? Well, that's probably not my first thing at Game Designers Workshop, but uh, actually started hanging around there in the embarrassingly early uh, mid to late seventies as just a kid playtesting games for them. Just a kid, and uh, then I started in. Uh, actually, did um, warehouse work for them as I moved into design and started working on. Uh, games like Traveler and Twilight 2000 had a few products that I worked on in there. Then started editing our magazine challenge that eventually be, was before that Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society. Uh, it was all a traveler based thing, but then it expanded to be a part all of game designers workshops, role playing games at the time. Uh, but yeah, then I went on to do other things, eventually leading me to TSR in beautiful Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where I Ended up living for 20 years. It was great. But for six years, I was uh, for six years, I was sort of a head of the uh, product development team that was working on everything second edition, mainly through that time. And and the, the, the my gateway into that was uh, as a young designer there, I got the opportunity to work on a brand new project that eventually became Dark Sun. It was great. Those were those were heady days, my friends. Very heady. We enjoyed it. It was and you if and anybody. Sorry, I was just going to say, if anybody wants to uh, hear more about that on episode eight of the Bonestone and Obsidian podcast, we had Tim on. And so he, you know, told us all kinds of secrets. So definitely go listen to that. <laughs> well, 
Maybe they were secrets then. They can't be secrets now. Too much time <laughs> yes. has passed, right? Yes. It was top mm-hmm. secret once. In fact, it really was top secret once. There were even code names for the project and things like that. Called it War World for the longest time and tried to make sure that uh, that uh, nothing got scooped out in the in the uh, in the I guess the magazine sphere, which was really the only gateway or the only uh, communication, frankly, between. Uh, uh, companies then and and their consumer and the people buying the games was just through Dragon Magazine. We didn't want anything to slip or anything to get out. So yeah, we were we had a good time making making all that. But yeah, that we we went through a lot of those details in that previous podcast. So if you want to go check that out, very very cool. It was you and uh, Troy Denning and Mary Correct. Kirchhoff, right? And then later Braun came aboard. Yeah, I, I actually, I think that the latter two were kind of flopped in order. We were working with Brahm, I think, before Mary was was heavily involved. But uh, Brahm, of course, was a, a new artist on the scene at TSR in those days. And he had such a unique style. We were very fortunate, Troy and I, to uh, begin working with him. And that relationship, of course, I've said in many other interviews, was just so unique uh, at the time that uh, we really wanted to develop a world with an artist rather than create a world strictly amongst us writers and then ask an artist to illustrate it. We really got Brahm in on, on the ground floor. Then uh, quickly thereafter, once uh, the design of the universe itself got uh, further along and we knew what we were, we were about to do and novels were going to suddenly be on the horizon, that's when Mary Kirchhoff, head of the book department, Mary got involved and started working, especially with Troy and Troy and me, uh, to uh, to get those original novels all all outlined and sorted out and ready to go. So, but that, that was, was basically the, the team. That was the golden age of meta plot, and I don't know how many of our audience are were around in the in the eighties and mid nineties, but there was certainly a vogue uh, spawned partly by White Wolf and uh, then uh, by others of having this overarching uh, narrative that uh, embraced many supplements and pushed the world forward and changed so much. And Dark Sun was almost, I think, the first uh, TSR product line that really leaned hard, well, along with the realms and the time, you know, the, the, the Forgotten Realms, but but leaned hard into the meta plot as such that I think the whole initial uh, Prism Pentad sequence was was all set in place before you even started the, the campaign set. Am I, am I right or do I have that wrong? As far as getting it outlined so that we knew it was going to happen in each story, yes, they weren't produced in advance. They weren't all written in advance of uh, all of the plotting for the role-playing game. But Troy was well ahead of the game and had had all five of those novels uh, well outlined um, as he was just getting the first one underway and as the uh, role-playing game itself and its original materials were reaching the market. So, uh, But we we wanted the whole thing to hang together. We, we thought we had a chance to do a, a lot of uh, uh, innovative things. We were pretty excited about uh, you know, bringing Dungeons and Dragons, the, bringing to it for the first time, sort of a pulp um, fantasy feel that uh, hadn't been done before. And at the same time, we, we were pretty excited I that. Um, I was on the. Was everything good? Yeah, sorry, that just did. Oh, we've got new attendees. I don't know what's going yes, on here. Apologies. Continue. Sorry. I remember. No, you, that's all right. I remember no, you telling me. Tim, when I was asking, so what actually goes on or how do you envision the Dark Sun campaign? And you described to me mm-hmm. the idea that it would be just, uh, you know, the player characters kind of 
knocking around the 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 setting from from gig to gig they would might might start out in a bandit gang say and then you know a monster kills everyone in the gang and so the player characters join an army next and then that that goes for a while and then they might head up a band of mercenaries and it, it had this kind of conan-esque sort of feel the sense of transitioning from one career to another to another yeah, that was sort of our objective, and 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 Conan was very influential in that. And the idea that, as we saw, you know, if you just read through all of the various stories of Conan, um, his fortunes rise and fall rather a lot with the telling of each tale. And we thought that would be an interesting way for the game for players in uh, Dark Sun to progress as well. And looking at the basic rules of first and second edition, and and the way most campaigns that any of us were familiar with the 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 fortunes of the characters went on a steady trajectory upwards with, with very few setbacks, to be honest, unless it was really built into the campaign or really, really called for by the game master. But we wanted a setting that sort of embraced that from the beginning that uh, uh, you might be, uh, you might be on top of the world in one adventure and really starting from scratch again, at least economically in, in the very next. And that would give a, a more diverse and again, pulp like feel to the whole thing. So, yeah. And I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I can't think of any other uh, campaign setting that TSR published that had that sort of hard scrabble feel, uh, at least early on. And I, I feel like that must still be a part of the attraction that keeps uh, people like uh, the Athos.org people and the, the and, and uh, all the, the the fans that are keeping the memory alive uh, must uh, must must have attracted them in the first place. And, and yet in another sense, it, it had it, the Dark Sun world kind of expanded uh, in that campaign sense to, to, to become really the high end of the, of the whole AD&D experience. While you were TSR's head of product development, you know, you, you wrote the Dragon King's hardcover rulebook, which by the way, I edited. And yes, you did. Uh, then you, that was for levels 21 to 30 and introduced 10th level spells and psionic enchantment. And uh, so eventually Dark Sun kind of transmogrified or at least grew to encompass the very highest end kind of adventures that players had seen up to that time. Yeah, I think the original, we put out the original game and uh, just the, the simple thing of having characters start at third level and, and these things sort of gave, gave everybody the impression, ooh, this is a more difficult, more violent, more desperate setting which uh, we, we thought was probably a good um, a bit of marketing. Um, the, the actual Dragon King's book itself uh, came about as uh, I wanted to introduce um, higher levels of magic, as you well know, uh, basically because I didn't see in second edition at that time, even up through uh, ninth level spells, so many of them are just, here's the bigger and better way to defeat the monster standing right in front of you. And, and none of that was speaking to me of the sort of uh, more epic uh, magic that might be, you know, cooked up by some wizard or some ancient priest who's got a thousand monks chanting for six months to try and get some big massive spell to go. So uh, that sort of thing I thought had its place in the Dark Sun setting. So I wanted to make sure that it, it got... Uh, proper coverage. So yeah, we, we created that hardbound and you and I went back and forth many times, as I recall, as we <laughs> should. But uh, yeah, the uh, I think the end result there gave everybody um, sort of a new look at where magic might go in that kind of a campaign as it gets higher and higher. So 
how do you think that affected the field going forward, especially the, the sort of DND uh, approach? That's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I think it was much of what was done in Dark Sun was taken to heart for a lot of future editions uh, of, uh, of the Dungeons and Dragons game as it's gone forward. Um, but uh, that's true of a lot of different settings as well. I mean, things were taken from all over it. And, and for the most part, every time a new edition comes out, it has managed to take some of the better pieces of each of the game settings and sort of incorporated the best gotten rid of the rest but um uh you know it's it's just good to be part of the legacy uh, the formative uh pieces that eventually have become what in my opinion the the new edition the, the latest edition 5e is a great edition of the dungeons and dragons game i'm i'm quite impressed i think uh that they've done a very good job and a lot of the, a lot of the great elements of what came before are there and and a, and a lot of the nonsense and chaff has just been left behind so Nice, nice, clean new edition. I'm very impressed with it, and I enjoy playing it. What do you got hope a question? Be the... Okay, go ahead. So, since we have both the writer and the editor here for Dragon Kings, one of the things that kind of comes up a lot in conversation is uh, the way that the Sorcerer Kings sort of grant their Templars magic, and the way you described it uh, in that book was by these elemental vortices, which are these sort of living things that they somehow got uh, to transfer the magic to their Templars. So uh, can you just shine any light on that, what you thought about it you know, initially and that it kind of affected the setting? From a conceptual standpoint, we just really wanted to have an explanation. And I think when we, we came up with the idea of the vortices and, and those potentially having a consciousness and an agenda and all of that, uh, for the most part, we were laying the groundwork for some additional uh, stories and novels down the line, probably most of which never really got touched upon, to be honest with you. But um, uh, having an explanation as opposed to not having an explanation is <laughs> is always best. So, But I don't know uh, where, Alan, you thought that was going when we were working on that at the time. You know, I, I think it was a, a good good attempt to address the fundamental paradox that you wanted uh, priests, but you didn't want gods. Uh, I remember talking with uh, Troy Denning at the time and commenting that, you know, where you, you've got this, this sort of desert, hard scrabble life uh, with uh, tribes and you know, warring city-states, it seemed like it would be a natural opportunity to introduce what had, what I think still remains the, the the ultimate taboo in D&D campaign settings, uh, monotheism. And uh, I was going to, I suggested to him, why is there not some <clears throat> cult pushing a single great omnipotent God? And he said, why would anyone follow a God that didn't grant you spells? And I said, people do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it seemed like the, the landscape that you created with Athos was very similar to the Levant, and it could have led to exactly that kind of that that kind of cultural development. But I think that was maybe a bridge too far. Well, we tried on so many levels from back to the initial concept of what would eventually become Dark Sun. We we uh, felt very unfettered, and and that we could do any, anything we wanted to, and in many ways. A lot of our original ideas well let's just take a look at what's been done in all the previous campaign settings for DD and let's do the opposite so uh all of them had gods so we decided to get rid of gods and you know so 
We thought that in our initial uh, design, if you'll recall, we had actually dispensed with all of the um, other uh, character races except for humans, and we're going to create entirely new ones. We eventually abandoned that plan, but we were really out there just, just looking at what, you know, what's been done before, how could we switch it all around? And even that concept got, you know, we, we kept the races, but then we twisted each one of them. I mean, there hadn't been cannibal halflings before. That's, you know, so we just, we tried to give them all their own new unique flavor, uh, but still give people a, a handle on it who've played the game before, something to connect to. So I think it worked out pretty good. How do you look back on the whole setting now, the whole project? Well, mostly, uh, mostly uh, just nostalgia, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, I think the setting itself is, is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, obviously, I've, I've, I've done further work uh, creating things that are very much like it. Uh, my own Dragon King setting that was that is going to re-release under Strange Owl Games here sometime this coming year. So that's all uh -huh. very fun. Uh, but uh, the idea that it. The game itself projected so many of the key essential things that I would put into really anything that I would design. So, um, uh, and in that regard, I want to keep some of those things going in, uh, for instance, the, the idea that the casting of magic has consequences. Magic is a very powerful thing, but to do so has a cost. I, I like that balancing factor. Those are sort of things that I like to move on. I'm glad that's part of the legacy of the game um, and the setting. But again, just as I think of Dark Sun these days, I have to think of it more honestly in career terms. It's just from, it's, it's for me, it's very nostalgic back to an earlier time in my own writing career, the things I was making then, how much fun I was having doing it, who I was doing it with, including you, Alan. And uh, all those things are just, it's just a great, big, happy bunch of memories in my life. And uh, I'm so glad that I got to be a part of it. You stay in touch with any of the other creators? Troy and I uh, get back and forth just once in a while. Uh, I haven't uh, done anything with Brom since he helped me get covers and other materials together for Dragon Kings, and that's been several years ago now. And uh, uh, yeah, I really haven't been in touch with uh, Mary. I'm in touch with Robert quite a bit um, and uh, other people who are fans. Uh, but, you know, the old TSR gang has gone, you know, a zillion directions and, and everybody's off on their their other and uh, later careers, I guess, is the best way to put that now. The people here might not know about your later musical career, Tim. Tell them about that. Oh, well, I, I live here in Las Vegas. I still play guitar and bands and sing and dance and have fun because that's just a, that's something I've been involved with for many years. And, you know, I just like to do that, too. You know, I have a, a life of sidelines. They're all sidelines <laughs> and they build up into, into one, one pretty fun life. But, yeah, that's good fun. There's a good, um, if, if anybody likes kind of prog music, uh, Tim did, uh, Tim and some other folks did uh, a soundtrack for uh, his Dragon King game. That is uh, super cool. I listen to that every now and again. Uh, I love it. Uh, both the instrumental and uh, the lyric version are, are great. Yeah, that was a fun, fun project. We, uh, we had some really good musicians working on that. Frank Klopaki was part of that. He's out here as a Vegas guy. He does a lot of work in computer games. And computer game music. Um, we also had Mike Stone, who's a guitar player from the band Queensryche. He did a lot of the work on that as well. Um, yeah, it was a tremendous amount of fun. And uh, yeah, there's, it's out there if you want to pick it up. Alan, so you, uh, I was just looking at your RPG Geek profile, and you've written for so many systems, which is awesome, uh, and you know a ton of D and D. 
But how did you actually get involved into Dark Sun? I was uh, working basically freelance uh, for, for TSR and a variety of contracts for a variety of their campaign settings. Uh, you know, there was a, a large and talented staff of designers that Tim ended up running, uh, but uh, there was also this whole platoon of freelance uh, contractors who would do uh, gig work, basically, and I was uh, brought in to uh, do the Veiled Alliance as, I think, the very first uh, project uh, that I worked on, on uh, Dark so. Sun. I was uh, very uh, pleased to, to take, uh, take my cue from from the, the work that Troy had done in defining the city-states there uh, in terms of giving each one its own emblematic uh, culture, largely based on earth cultures. And so I kind of took that and uh, ran with that and uh, added up some more, added in more cultural detail and some sort of gazetteer type material that I gather has, has proven very popular uh, among the Dark Sun fans even down to this day. I was sure. sitting in on uh, on Jack's panel just a moment, just an hour ago, and someone was talking, you know, showering praise on on the Veiled Alliance guy who added all the details. And uh, <laughs> so I think that was very welcome. And Veiled Alliance was also interesting in that it highlighted the possibilities of Athos uh, as it, in, to encourage other kinds of campaigns, campaign types that were not typical uh, for. TSR at the time for D&D at the time, uh, you know, it's a kind of, you, if you want to run it that way, the Veiled Alliance campaign framework is a very dark kind of paranoid espionage style of uh, secret societies. And you're, you're never quite sure why you are being sent on this mission or who's doing it or what you're trying to accomplish. And you may not even know whether you accomplished the goals that they had. It's all depending on how dark you want to play it, it can be a very mysterious kind of secret agent sort of campaign, which you did not see in a lot of D&D fantasy. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's been, it's very good. The whole Dark Sun setting is very good that way. You can be dune traders running caravans. You can, uh, you can be espionage agents. You can uh, be out there just trying to, to knock over entire city-states. It has a, a scope to it that I never saw in any other uh, campaign setting. So I just want to shower praise on Tim again there for that. Thank you. So I don't know if you know, so in fourth edition, uh, the Ashes of Athis campaign is actually kind of like, it starts with the Veiled Alliance and you're all kind of Veiled Alliance members. So that's really like the longest campaign that exists. I think it's like 24 adventures. Um, and so it's it's a huge campaign um, that I was luckily lucky to write a few and edit a few of those. So um, oh. so yeah, we we embraced the Veiled Alliance, going to different cities and uh, being undercover. But also, you know, there was a huge um, like big fight in the end of like you know uh, fighting a huge kind of primordial thing, which was something basically an elemental, um, but it was uh, all good stuff. I was so surprised when I was uh, checking back through the Dark Sun line. I was, I had previously been sort of unfamiliar with the later uh, line, and I was pleased to see that uh, for the fourth edition uh, version, the revised uh, Dark Sun campaign setting book by Bill Slavisek, he actually, in every city-state entry, he, he ends up with what the Veiled Alliance is doing there <laughs> in, that, uh, in that particular city-state. <laughs> yep, definitely important.
So we, we have a, uh, Alex, I believe, has a uh, question. So I'm going to unmute him and. Uh... Hi. Hello. So, um, Alan, uh, you wrote uh, the Vela Lions book, but there's a shortened short story in there that we never get to see the end unless you open a certain Dragon magazine. That, uh, that was, the, I had uh, written an early story called The Year of Priest Defiance uh, that for Dragon Magazine that was actually kind of intended as a sort of an origin story uh, for, uh, for the Veiled Alliance, I think. And that seemed to be a natural fit for my uh, Veiled Alliance source book. And so I included it at the, the whole text of the story as part of the last chapter, the campaigning chapter. And unfortunately, as has happened with almost every one of my books, I, I ran way long and I just I just wrote too long. I am I am a, by nature a wordy bastard, as perhaps you have already seen. And so the editor, Doug Stewart, uh, decided to, to sort of cut uh, where it would fit. And uh, he said it worked at the time. And I, I'm not convinced that it did, but no. it, <laughs> at least it, it it was a it was an effort it was a good try <laughs> i would say it took me years to discover it the complete version existed and when i read it 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 floored me because i'm um, i'm a sucker for those types of stories that you that you were writing in there it's like um a mix between a, a story representing something real or maybe a myth like a thousand and one nights type of story. You don't know if it's real or not. You know, I did not do much fiction, uh, but in my career, but I did the most of the fiction that I did ended up being published for uh, TSR. Uh, I had another couple of stories in Dragon Magazine, and uh, in fact, uh, what my maybe my favorite short story of, of my works is uh, one I col collaborated with the late Aaron Alston uh, for the Dark Sun line, and it's called Boneyard Lights, and it appeared in Astically and Gambit. It, uh, it really turned out to be uh, quite, a, quite a nice work because Aaron is such a, was such a talented writer, and uh, he died a few years ago. It was, I, I still miss him, but uh, it, was, it was a great way to get at uh, the culture of Gulg, the, the African-based uh, city-state there. And I feel like it was it was the most effective visualization I had ever done of, of one of these uh, one of the campaign settings cultures. Indeed, the birds, the forests, the nights, um, you were quite transported <laughs> into Gulg, which none of the other books actually succeed. You just imagine threes and and that's it. You're, uh, <laughs> Uh, but one last detail about Water and Ashes, which is the actual name, apparently, of the story. Uh, you took a, an incredibly uh, silly magic item from Dungeon and Dragon, the Elm of Alignment Change, and you made it <laughs> an incredible part of the story, which really makes the story possible, because otherwise it, it wouldn't work. And... I, I, I thought in a million years, I would never see anybody write anything intelligent about a helm of alignment change. So that's awesome. <laughs> the challenge was made. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it.
Uh, so, so I have a, uh, a question um, uh, for Tim. Yeah. Tim, so on uh, Dragonkins, there's no uh, psionicist advanced being. Was that purposeful? Um, it, this question might have gotten asked plenty of times in the last 30 years, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, was it purposeful? Uh, some of the questions are always asked, like uh, psionic powers on Dark Sun augment uh, the other classes, uh, but some of the other classes just didn't get any augmentation. And looking at through your design lens, um, mm -hmm. at the 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 next iterations of D and D and how they uh, created uh, certain classes like the warlock and the sorcerer. Any ideas that you'd care to share on, on what advanced beings you would design uh, for those classes? Um, well, I, I guess um, in in hindsight, we we knew we'd have the advanced beings for. Uh, you know the Evangelion and, and whatnot, but we 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 didn't create one for psionics just because we felt psionics is a unique and a, a, such a different animal, and we thought we just wanted to first and foremost make a distinction. Um, any speculation along those lines, at least my own part, was probably never made it onto paper. Is basically that any advanced being would be such a being of pure thought that uh, where would we actually put that in the game, and how would we run such such a thing as that? But um, uh, I think that uh, the way that some of those powers get incorporated in some of the later classes and later editions of the game, I think, is is uh, has been quite imaginative. Um, but uh, you know, the uh, we didn't intentionally try to create a groundwork for any of that. But I think maybe maybe somehow we did. Thanks, uh, much much appreciated. I've, I've got a, another one, and this one is for both Tim and Alan. Populations in Dark Sun. Um, uh, we've gone uh, um, amongst the fan community. There's always this question about um, the city-state population. Is the city-state population that's listed, which is listed in Alan's book uh, for the first time, um, is that just the city-state proper or is it the entirety of the, the verdant plains around it? You know, I was just making up what sounded plausible. Uh, I... I feel like I don't, after 30 years, I'm not really qualified to speculate on that, Tim. <laughs> uh, when those numbers came up at first, it, it was my uh, assumption that they referred to those people living within the walls of the city-state itself, not necessarily the surrounding area. And the surrounding area, in most cases, is something you couldn't possibly measure anyway, or not accurately. So I always took those numbers to be in the in the city walls, in the environs of the city-state itself. Saved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that brings up a, a question. Um, so in, in Lynn Abbey's book, she writes about, uh, I think it's like 10 towns that are kind of around the city-state. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's not really talked about anywhere else that other cities have that, but it, it would make sense. Like, is that something that you think that would uh, make sense for other cities as well? We felt the same way. We actually adopted when, when Troy... Uh, originally drew the first map. And of course, it's it's sort of Colorado shaped for two reasons. We used a Colorado shaped piece of paper. And uh, the and, and after that, uh, Troy being a, a real uh, son of Colorado, you know, he just definitely wanted Athos to embrace all of the, the, the crazy mountains and deserts and terrain types of his home state. Um, but the other thing we adopted was the notion that was was pioneered really in the Forgotten Realms, that the maps themselves really just show you the major features and 
you can expect that there are lots of other cities, roads, towns, little rivers everywhere on that Forgotten Realms map that aren't depicted at that at that at scale. And we felt the same was true in uh, in our uh, Dark Sun map that little tiny villages they're probably everywhere and little tiny outposts and enclaves and all this other stuff and they're just not on there. We assume they're all over. So what Lynn did in uh, her books, uh, yeah, very much captured what we our original intent. So this is news to me. So you can say that the guy who wrote the Veiled Alliance book knew nothing about that, and you can just <laughs> fix things as you wish. Remember, we created this game in an era where communication was by letter and telephone. So, you know, the internet was just coming along. Emails were something totally new. Now that, that I had that to send sense. in my manuscripts on five and a quarter inch floppy disks, and then eventually right. on three and a half inch floppy disks. Mm -hmm. I remember that I wrote one supplement for Marvel superheroes where the night before I was about, it was due, I was about to send it in and I wrote the wrong, I typed the DOS command wrong and deleted the entire supplement. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that, that was, uh, that took a, a, bad day. a few years off my life. That's when my <laughs> Sorry to hear it. Yeah. So, so, uh, Alan, I saw that on the on the Veil of the Lions book, um, the cell structure looks a lot like an, an insurgent structure. I'm in the military, so right away, every time I look at that, I'm I'm like, man, this is exactly what we would uh, template uh, an insurgency uh, to look like, especially out in the in the field and stuff. But uh, did you did you use any military doctrine to to build that cell structure, or or how did you come used about it? I used Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and uh, that was where uh, Heinlein described a uh, the sort of pyramidal structure as an improvement on the traditional two-dimensional uh, structure. And I had a whole complicated uh, pyramid uh, to, to be visualized, and I guess that just proved to be a little bit too much for the artist, and, and he just, and so he came up with this, this very flat uh, presentation that you know, it might it still confuses me to this day and as it happens I did in fact find on YouTube a uh, a, a, a mobile it's a hanging uh, mobile that it has these sort of iterative fractal pyramids and I am going to put up a link to that uh, to the ternary tree mobile by mathematician Henry Segerman and everyone now can understand exactly what a veiled alliance structure is supposed to look like. Nice. Awesome. That is the value that I bring to today's meeting. <laughs> ah, interesting. That's great. That's great. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure for all our listeners that uh, we'll include that uh, link um, in the uh, a bone stone and obsidian podcast, as sure. well as uh, on our Facebook group. So glad to clear that up after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the uh, the good fortune um, um, to get some of the old documents from City State of Tear that Walter Bass originally wrote. And so like there was, you know, a few things here and there that kind of got cut. You had mentioned that that's um, that some of the story got cut. Was there anything else, uh, you know, in addition to the obviously the way this uh, pyramid structure looks was there anything else that you can remember that you're like oh shoot you know i really really missed that piece or anything like that 
Uh, you know, it, I don't remember anything uh, very much. I, you know, when I was looking back through the Veiled Alliance again uh, after all these years ahead of this meeting, I uh, realized uh, that that was the the moment that I uh, experimented very briefly with uh, writing uh, in E prime, which is a, a form of English uh, where you don't use any uh, form of the verb to be. So you never say anything is or are something. You have to use active verbs all through. And I wrote that entire supplement in uh, in E prime, which was a task. And I have to say it. It reads a little bit weird now. Even at the time, it struck me that everything sounded like a National Geographic caption. And uh, then Doug Stewart was not quite clear on, on, on that. And he actually introduced a few is's and R's. So I'm not going to say it's 100% E prime, but it was, uh, that was what struck me most about that supplement after all these decades. I don't remember that there was anything signally missing uh, from from the final final published work that I had uh, that I had uh, tried to put in. Well, thanks uh, thanks for that, uh, Alan. Uh, Tim, I have a, another question. Yeah. So, given that you uh, you you co-wrote the the main campaign setting and then did Dragon Kings, and then that's it. I mean, uh, after that, many other authors wanted in on Dark Sun and uh, mm -hmm. continued to develop the world. What other areas did you want to explore, uh, but didn't get a chance to? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Troy and I, Troy Denning and I have talked about this over the years, and you know, uh, we had both had such a great opportunity uh, helping to create the Dark Sun universe, but then both of us, our career paths took us away from being the custodians of the game world itself, because he went on to do novels and novels almost exclusively. And I went off into management. So I wasn't contributing a whole lot to this setting after a while either. So uh, those people who became its custodians did, did a, an excellent job and made a lot, of, a lot of great products. And we were very happy with how the line progressed. Um, for myself, the one thing that I thought if had I been more actively involved in the universe, my my ambition, I think I've said this in other interviews, was that um, this little portion of Athos that we had described was going to eventually be kind of, if you figure out, this is the last bastion of uh, the, the limited uh, humanoid civilization on all of the planet. And pretty much the far side of the planet is all dominated by some gigantic Thrycrene Roman Empire sort of thing that would lead to a lot of John Carter of Mars type explore, exploration and things like that. Uh, none of that got ever developed. I didn't push it. I didn't want to force that on anybody who was continuing with uh, the, the the design of of Athos or or the Dark Sun universe. But uh, had I had I could I go back in time and, and create all of that and make that part of the focus of future play? I mean, that 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 would be I think so much fun to go explore that kind of a setting rooted in the original Dark Sun universe. Well, Tim, uh, uh, Tim Beach. Uh kind of, he wrote Thrycreen of Athos and he definitely, uh, you know, alluded to that, um, which was fantastic. Um, that was such a great, um, great interview as well. Um, yeah, Thrycreen are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. They were just too much fun. They were sitting there writing the players or the, uh, sorry, the, uh, the newly created Monsters Manual. And uh, it's like, oh, we got, we've got to build these into Dark Sun. It just has to happen, so. 
So, 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 Tim, a follow up to that. So we can, yeah. we can definitively say that uh, the insectoid races are the dominant race uh, that remain on Athos. That was that was my plan, most definitely. Yes. Okay, so we have a couple questions. Uh, I'm going to go first to uh, Quentin and then to uh, Alec. Okay. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, hi, my name is Quinton. Uh, very pleased to meet you all. Um, I'm phoning in from South Africa, actually. And uh, I just wanted to say, for, um, yeah, this is less of a, I do have a question, but less of a question and more of a thank you to all of you. Thank you to the organizers for organizing this, this AthosCon, because, um, you know, the dark sun setting, um, you know, is a, is, is a beautiful setting and it's, it's very niche and unique. And it was hard to find a, a, a community around it until I did a little bit of digging. And when I found Atheriscon, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you to both, uh, you know, both you, uh, Timothy and, and, and Alan, for doing all the writing that you've done, because um, just recently I've been um, sort of setting up a bunch of campaigns and I've run the same campaign now with five different groups uh, all in the same month over one weekend and it has brought a world of joy to, to each and every one who've been playing us uh, playing it because it uh, really is such a unique setting and it, it, it's gotten uh, the intensity of it all has has brought um that 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 uh sort of like the craving to continue uh, playing dnd and making our own story so thank you so much uh leading into like just a quick question um, because the you know I love the setting so much, I was wondering: Has anybody ever approached you guys about um, making a, like a live action movie or an animated series that is set in in in, uh, in the Dark Sun setting? I know IDW did a like you know uh, like a comic book series for a little while, uh, but I haven't really ever heard anything about like movies being made uh, or, or TV series. So um, yeah, if you don't mind answering that question, that would be lovely. Well, thanks. I appreciate all your kind words about the setting, and I'm glad you're enjoying it so much and your friends as well. Um, as far as television or movie production, uh, there was, in my tenure at TSR, there was nobody who actually approached uh, saying they wanted to specifically make a movie about uh, the Dark Sun setting. We were just really in those days getting the first uh, nibbles and bites of people who wanted to come in and make a Dungeons and Dragons movie at all. And even that took many years and there were fits and starts about all of that. Now, it, but I haven't been part of the TSR Watsy Hasbro sphere for the better part of, you know, 25 years at this point. So whether or not anybody has come in the meantime specifically to say they wanted to make a movie or TV series about Dark Sun, I couldn't say. None exists. But we also know for various reasons, Hasbro and Watsi have elected to basically keep Dark Sun in a drawer for some future development, or they, they, if they have great new plans for it, I couldn't tell you what they are. And if, uh, if anybody else on this panel knows what they are, I'd, I'd love to hear them. I was hoping but, uh, you'd use your psionic powers to, you know, get, get some intel. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been trying for so long and it's just never really worked out in that regard. So pleased to hear from someone from South Africa. I actually lived for a couple of months in Cape Town, South Africa. Just a beautiful city, living inside oh. a Table Mountain, and uh, it was uh, it was just a, a gorgeous time. And the whole country is just so uh, so pretty. And so I, I hope to return someday, see the flowers of Namaqua Land, and so on. 
Nice. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad that you visited and we'd love to have you all back. And, and, and to anybody here on the panel who hasn't visited, please do come over and feel free to hit me up. Uh, I'm, I'm on the Discord. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, definitely. If there's no movie happening just yet, then perhaps perhaps it's time to, that, that, that we get one going, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll go to our uh, next question uh, by Alex and then Jason. Uh, Alan, um, maybe a, a quick two-parter. Uh, how much of actual terrorists, in a sense, did you visualize the Veiled Alliance members to be? Like noble knights fighting against the oppression of the Sorcerer Kings? Or somebody perfectly able to slit the throat of somebody else where to further the ends of the alliance because you, you kind of skirt the limits in between kind of saying you do what you want it's your campaign but did you have some kind of opinion should it be brutal or um noble well, it seemed like the note that was being struck constantly in the Dark Sun line before I wrote The Veiled Alliance was that it's a very pragmatic place. And, you know, there is no room for high ideology when you're just struggling to survive. And The Veiled Alliance as an organization, as I made very clear in the, in the text, is not an organization of high ideals. It is strictly a protective organization and individual chapters and individual cities uh, may have uh, goals of, of greater or lesser integrity uh, and of greater ambition or lesser. All of that to me seems very much a matter of campaign choice. Uh, so I, I always tend to, to veer toward the more idealistic and upbeat kind of, uh, you know, stick it to the man kind of uh, revolutionary uh, fighting. But that is not to everyone's taste and it certainly is not necessarily part of the dark sun ethos and the ethos ethos and so I uh, I basically never tried to picture them in any particular way I could well imagine that any given member of the veiled alliance is very happy to to, to slit a throat if it's going to get him out of trouble um the Veil Alliance does show up in uh, in Denning's um, mostly one book and then a short appearance in Nibane in another book of the Prison Pantheon. Were you at all, I, I can't for the love of me remember the the calendar, so the, which one came first, but did you add any kind of mutual input as to what the alliance should actually be like in a novel? No, I think Troy was very much his own man with the, 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 those novels, and I maybe Tim can can comment on that. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, I mean, basically with the storylines that were going in the novels, Troy very much had free reign. Now he he read a lot of the materials being written elsewhere about the setting, everything that was going on in the design of the role playing universe. Um, and for the most part, he, he tended to take that uh, well to heart, but didn't necessarily let it guide him as he created really anything in the novel's line. So there are departures. And, you know, that, that's, that's often the case in, in pretty much any shared universe situation. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think his interpretation is a, is a 
an, a, an acceptable one and a fun one. So uh, it worked well for the novels and 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 really didn't uh, didn't negate anything that's in the the written material for the role playing setting. So it it all balances out. And the final thing, perhaps, uh, Alan is uh, rereading the book Veil Alliance. I was excited to see there was a section called Villages and Oasis. I like I'm flipped to it. It's like two pages long. <laughs> so uh, did you ever consider that in a sense, the Veil Alliance is the only organization of preservers and they're in the cities or are there in a sense other organizations of preservers but they're just not in the cities just like you could have something secret in the desert or or are wizards just too rare in a sense for it to happen in a world like Athens? Sounds pretty cool. Uh, for an individual DM, it seems like that would be a, a natural path to explore if that interests you. It seems, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think in retrospect, it was kind of a misstep in the Veiled Alliance when I started talking about demographics and talking about what percentage of people are, are, are spellcasters versus the regular population. I think, you know, in retrospect, I think that was too doctrinaire. I, I tried here and there to say, well, obviously you will change this according to your own uh, needs, but, you know, I don't think I, I stressed that quite well enough. And the, the question of whether uh, magicians or spellcasters are rare is, is very much a, a matter of the individual story you want to tell. And the way I was describing the demographics there, it was, uh, I, I was, I was making them pretty rare. And the idea that there could be even more than one or two preservers in a, in a given little oasis town, I, you know, I, that would not fit the numbers that I was bandying about in that book. But, you know, you should change the number so that, you're sure, there could be plenty of individual uh, small sects of the Veiled Alliance or of completely different uh, preserver organizations scattered all across the landscape of Colorado. <laughs> and I do, I do. So thank you for that. Thanks, Alex. Uh, we're going to get to our last question uh, by Jason, and then we're, we're going to close with uh, uh, some author um uh, what's going on? What what are we doing? Uh, what are you doing in the future? So last question, Jason. All right. <clears throat> Thanks very much. Um, thanks also to our guest commentator, our, our guest panelists here and the moderator and to the people who organized this awesome conference. Um, I really, really love the Dark Sun setting, and I must confess that I love it so much. I take it with me to other game systems that I try out <laughs> besides D&D. So I played Numenera and we have Athos in Numenera and we play nice. out, you know, sort of game, you know, events of the prison pentad. That's a good and stuff. fit. Um, I, can't well, and, I can't wait to tell Monty that. Yeah. Oh, oh well, great great uh yeah i would i would love for him <laughs> to hear that all I've, I've also we've also run using rowan rook and deckard spire slash heart system we've we've enjoyed athos um and 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 there's different because the mechanics themselves come with different uh you know emphases i was wondering like clearly i i, I wouldn't be so bold as to say everything goes where like Ath where dark sun monopoly would represent the setting or something but i was wondering <laughs> if you had thoughts on you know degrees of fit for you know not not just second edition D, &D rules but like other ways people might explore this really really fun uh setting you know in in, in other uh i guess mechanical aspects it's a general Fire question it's a super terrific choice for that 
You know, the, yeah. they've got a whole rebellion system that is, yeah. they've got under an open license. So yeah, yeah, everybody get right to work on adapting that. <laughs> that seems like a natural, it's entirely about being oppressed by a bunch of super powerful bastards and organizing <laughs> a revolution to overthrow them. Man, I can't believe I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you very much. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, any comments on that, Tim? Yeah, I, I, I guess um, basically the, the we wanted to keep, of course, uh, we wanted to make a game system or a game universe that would work with the second edition of D&D. That was, you know, those were our marching orders. Uh, uh, but where we could take departures, uh, we did. And uh, I think, you know, again, I think the whole idea of what is preserving magic and what is defiling magic is something that uh, I, you know, uh, that's just as long as you're bringing that mechanic along with you in some form to another game system, then I think you still got you still got a, a very dark sun uh, universe to work with. I think as long as you bring those along to me, it's still a dark sun setting. Thanks, appreciate it, uh, Jason. Excellent question. So um, we're we're almost at out out of our time right now. We've got about three minutes. So uh, first, uh, I want to thank uh, everybody for attending, uh, Tim and Alan, especially. Uh, you know, uh, Dark Sun wouldn't be uh, what it is uh, without you guys. And of, and of course, to the uh, awesome community that we have that consistently uh, has continued to advocate for Dark Sun over the last uh, 31 years um, that the game system has come out. Uh, our last question here uh, is basically, what what are you doing now? What, what uh, you know, and I'll, and I'll leave uh, uh, Tim and then Alan uh, what are you doing now in design perspective that, uh, you know, you'd want uh, the fans to know about? Uh, Tim and then Alan. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm still heavily involved in uh, role-playing games. I've been in close association with Ulysses Spiele out of Germany, where we've done a lot of uh, publication of their game, Das Schwarze Alga and The Dark Eye, bringing that into English. With that uh, And through them, we've breathed life into a few uh, nostalgic role-playing lines like uh, Torg, now Torg Eternity, and Fading Suns, uh, with a split-off company that's just based here in the United States, now called Strange Owl Games, that I am uh, heading up. We're about to release uh, Space 1889 as a new revival of that game, and moving forward into next year, we have a brand new design of a great new system and uh, and uh, presentation for uh, my Dragon King setting, which is a uh, a spiritual successor to uh, many of the ideas that I, I pioneered in Dark Sun. So, yeah, all of those things are going on. Check things out at strangeowlgames.com and, uh, and and keep up with what I'm doing. Alan, I run a to? website called uh, The Bundle of Holding. It's uh, www.bundleofholdingalloneword.com. And it's uh, sort of a, it's a site that sells time-limited offers of uh, role-playing game PDFs and eBooks. Uh, in the manner of Humble Bundle and other sites like that. And I've been running that for most of 10 years now, and it's been a very good gig, but I have been missing uh, getting missing game design. And so next year, my wife, Beth Fiske, and I are uh, planning to uh, kickstart a new fifth edition campaign supplement uh, organized around the, uh, the Magnificent Mansion spell, the seventh level uh, wizard spell that uh, conjures... A beautiful, uh, luxurious mansion for you, and we figure out a way to make that kind of opulent, 
luxury available even to low-level characters without breaking the game. So we're going to do a mansion supplement next year that I hope will help increase the comfort level of beginning characters everywhere. <laughs> Adventure in style. There like you go. That's great. Rob, uh, do you have anything? Uh, no, thank you so much, Alan and Tim. Always good to see you. Thanks for having us. Uh, very well, glad gentlemen, to be thank you. Thank you very much. And on behalf of uh, AthosCon, we hope to see you again in the future. Uh, thanks, everybody, for all your participation and keep hope alive.